Welcome to Pursue Wisdom, the teaching podcast of Bethlehem Church in Austin, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Paul Steele, and we are in a sermon series called Asking for a Friend. We all have questions when it comes to God, the Bible, what it means to follow Jesus. And we would like some answers to those questions to give us confidence in what we believe. And so my prayer is that in this sermon series, you will be encouraged, that you will be given some reasons on why you can know that following Jesus is the absolute best way to live. Let's get into the sermon. We are starting a new sermon series. It's going to take 14 weeks to to go through as we try to answer some common questions that people have about God, the Bible, and uh, following Jesus. And uh, but at the at the start of this not only sermon but this whole series, because on one hand this is kind of intimidating, right? Because I'm trying to. Uh, answer questions that whole books have been written about. And, and so I just want to remind you that I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in, in, in this at all. Uh, the best that I am doing is collecting information I have found in other sources and putting it together in a way that might be helpful to you. Uh, and uh, And... And so I just want to remind you that there, I don't have all the answers. In fact, I probably have very few answers, but I'm doing my best to put these things together so that we can look at the world and the questions through a Christian worldview, through a biblical uh, worldview, that that's going to influence our thoughts and our minds and, and just how we come towards these questions. And that's why we're starting with this question today. Can I trust the Bible? Because this is the foundation, you know, for really moving forward. We're going to the Bible. So we're going to start here with a, with a question. I'm going to ask you a question. How do we get our questions answered? How do we get our questions answered? Well, within our culture, this hasn't always been true, but in the last 10 years or so, this is the way we get our, our answers, our questions answered. We go to Google, right? We Google it, right? Google started out as a search engine. It's now a verb. You Google it, right? So we're, we go to, to Google for to get answers to our questions. In 2022, here are the top five Googled questions. The first, the number one Google question, and this might say a whole lot about our society, our culture, the number one Google question is what to watch. What to watch. That was asked 109,680,000 times. What to watch? The second most Googled question in 2022, where's my refund? That was Googled 89,760,000 times. How many ounces in a cup? 
That was the third most Googled question. What time is this? Or what time is it? What time is it? That's what it is. What time is it? People just like, like you don't have a watch? You can't look at your phone? What time is it? And then uh, the fifth one, what song is this? What song is this? So those are the questions that people are asking. They're Googling. So it's so easy when we have a question, right? We've kind of all fall, fallen into this pattern to Google it, to ask Siri, right? Hey, Siri. Hey, Alexa. Like, we're asking, like, what is, I have a question. But there's this, this reality as followers of Jesus that we know that when we have a question about life, when we have a question about God, when we have a question about following Jesus, we need to be turning towards the Bible. That the Bible's where we should look for guidance. The Bible's where we should look for some answers. Paul wrote to his student Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong with our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Paul says here that the Bible is useful, right? To teach, to correct, to guide, to show us how we are to live. But the only way that it really can do that is if we trust what it says. If we're doubting what the Bible says, then we're not going to listen to it. We're not going to read it. It's not going to make any difference in our lives. So this is why this question, can I trust the Bible, is such an important question to answer. Because almost all the other, well, all the other questions that we're going to answer are going to find their answers in Scripture. So can we really trust the Bible? Can we trust what the Bible has to say? So when it comes to our interaction with the Bible, I think there are two very important truths to remember. And when we come to the Bible, there are two important truths that we need to consider, to remember. And the first one is this. Uh, the Bible was written for us, not to us. The Bible was written for us, not to us. This is what Dan Kimball writes about in his book, How Not to Read the Bible. The Bible is written for us, not to us. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the Bible is what God wants us to know. The Bible is God's word for us, for his people throughout the centuries. We gain wisdom and guidance and truth from his 
word. But it wasn't written to us. It was written to specific people in specific situations in a specific culture that are not our own. So a couple examples of this. When the Bible opens up in Genesis 1-1, and God created the heavens and the earth, what do we immediately think of? We think of the earth as this ball hanging in space, right? And the heavens is all that above us. The original hearers of that, they had no concept of space. They had no concept of the world hanging in, what that even looks like. The, the guy, the Tim and John from the Bible Project talk about how ancient co uh, cosmology, so how they viewed the earth, they viewed it as they call a snow globe. Like the, the, the earth is flat and it's covered with a dome. And so they are reading that, those words with a total different perspective on things than we do, just because we have a different culture. Another example is, is this. In, uh, in uh, the lists of unclean animals, bur or bats are listed among unclean birds. And so skeptics, modern skeptics will say, oh, look at those crazy people back then who didn't know the difference between a bird and a bat and a mammal. Like, yeah, they don't use the same categories that we do. It's a total different thing. And, and remember then when we move into the New Testament, right, uh, a lot of Paul's letters are written to specific churches that are dealing with specific issues, and the great problem that we have in interpreting those is that we're reading somebody else's mail. We're only getting one side of the conversation, and we don't really know all that's going on there. And so what that means is that when we come to the Bible, part of our job, part of our task is to understand the original context, the culture in which, to which it was written. And as we do that, we're going to come away with a greater understanding of the truth that is there. And so this is not to discourage us from reading the Bible, even if we don't have all that information, because we believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding us and teaching us, and it's going to guide us through our reading and through our study of Scripture. But it is to say that there is great importance in the work of trying to understand the original context in which Scripture was written. It was written for us. This is what God wants us to have Peter mentions this in, in his letter, too, uh, when he, he writes that the prophets of old, right, they wrote these things, and they came to realize that they were writing them not for themselves, but for us. Like, Scripture is written for us, but it's not necessarily written to us because we live in a different cultural Aspect. We weren't the original recipients of what God directed people to write. 
And so then the second important truth that it comes when we interact with the Bible is that every word here has been translated. None of this is original. This has all been translated from Hebrew, from Greek. And so that means that some things are just lost in translation because it's a totally different language. If you know languages, there are some words that just, they don't have, they don't, you know, translate very easily. So that's another reason why it's important for us to understand the context of which, what, these, what the original scripture was written to and understand some of the, the biblical language. Not that we ourselves need to, to do that, but we, we read and, and understand uh, the people who do those, that type of work. But I do also want to say is that you can trust this translation. Why? Because if you look at some of your Bibles or, or, uh, or uh, you, you go on the website for your, the translation you use, they will show you the number of scholars involved in translating that, that scripture. Like there are people who are dedicated to getting God's word and making that available to people. So you can trust it. You can trust that they put work into it. All our major English translations are good. There's not a bad one. They have different philosophies for how to translate. And so you'll have some translations that work more on, on a word basis. And so, you know, word for word, which is hard to do, which is why those translations, like the New American Standard Bible, are a little more clunky. They're a little harder to read, but they're trying to be more accurate with what the actual words are. But then you have other translations, like the New Living Translation that I like to read out of, that focus more on thoughts. And they do that so it's easier to read, but in the process, they're, they are offering some interpretations in what these phrases mean. There's kind of a trade-off. That's why I would recommend that you have a, a translation like the New Living Translation, like the New International Version, that, that gives you this, this thought translation that makes it easier to read, and then another translation like the New American Standard Bible and, uh, that is more word for word that helps you understand the differences there. And you can see them. And it might help you understand, oh, this is what this actually means or whatever. But you can trust our translations because there are people who are working, who have spent their life learning the, the ancient languages, understanding the original context to give us a faithful represent, representation of God's word. So as we talk about the trustworthiness of Scripture, there's really three lines of evidence. And these, they, these are common lines of evidence. When you look at places that talk about the reliability of Scripture, these three things always come up. 
And they get a little dry for some. And so this, is, this was my great concern for this sermon is not to make it boring, right? Because the, this, this stuff is, can get technical. It can get kind of, your eyes can glaze over. So I'm going to make this real quick as we look at some of these lines of evidence. And the first line of evidence is the, is the manuscript evidence. So when it comes to the manuscript evidence, there's really two basic things that people are looking at. They're looking at the copies that have been preserved. And then second, they're looking at how accurately those copies have been copied. So remember, we don't have, and this is true for any ancient book, we don't have the original manuscripts for any of it. So the best that we have are copies and copies of copies, right? And, and so when it comes to the number of manuscripts, which range from just little fragments of papyra and all that that's, that they can find to whole books, there are some complete books that, that we have. Uh, so when it comes to the number of manuscripts, Caesar's Gallic Wars... The number of manuscripts they have of that, which historians use as for history, is 10. They have 10 manuscripts, pieces or, or whole parts of it. When it comes to Homer's Iliad, which is, this is a significant one because this was such an important book in the ancient world. There is 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. When it comes to the Old Testament, the Old Testament has over 11,000 manuscripts. So you have right? To 11,000 for the Old Testament. The New Testament has 5,700 manuscripts to it. And then when you add in the, trans, the different translations you have uh, uh, of the Old Testament, you have the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the, the Old Testament, which is probably what uh, uh, Jesus and the disciples, that, that's what they were using they, because a lot of the, the things that they, uh, the, a lot of the references to the Old Testament come from the Septuagint. It's from the Septuagint, uh, the, the way that Septuagint translates things. So the Septuagint, there's also uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch. So trans, translated there. So these things add to this manuscript count. Then you have with, with uh, the New Testament, you have all the Greek stuff, but then you also have the Latin which was early on translated into Latin. So you have these things. But the other thing that's very important is, is when those manuscripts were written. So for, for like the Gallic Wars and the Iliad, the, the oldest surviving copies that we have of those were written or copied Centuries after the originals were written. The New Testament is the best attested 
book of the ancient world because you start having fragments of the New Testament show up in uh, the earliest one is a fragment of the book of John that was written around 117 AD. So within decades of when the book of John was written, you have a copy of it. That is an amazing thing when you're talking about these manuscripts from the ancient world. And then on top of it, when, since we have all this manuscript evidence, what they can do is then they compare what's been translated. They compare all these different manuscripts that they have. And what they've found is that the New Testament is 99.5% accurate. So it's been, it's been translated, it's been preserved accurately. Because all these different manuscript fragments and pieces and that they have that they use to compile full agreement. Just 0.5% of the time there's a, a disagreement and most of that corruption happens with, well, with nothing that, that concerns a Christian doctrine, but just like little mistakes that might happen during the copying process. So what we see here then, this is the big idea, or this is the big point in the manuscript evidence, is that the process of copying and preserving God's word or the Bible was not like a game of telephone, right? Where you start, it's that game where you tell one person a sentence and there's to relay it to the next person, to relay it to the next one, to the, and then you get to the end and it's like this totally different sentence, right? Because as people are trying to repeat it, that's not what this, this copying was. We can see that it was remarkably accurate and that we can be sure that what was originally written is what we now have and what we now read. So that's the first piece of evidence, the manuscript evidence. The second piece of evidence is the archaeological evidence. So, the N.T. Wright, who's done a lot of work on the resurrection of Jesus and, and, uh, and Second Temple Judaism you know, during the time of, of Jesus and just studying that culture, he says, you know, that the Bible, uh, the Bible is about history and to history that we should go. So, we need, does, do we find what the Bible says happened really happened. That's the importance of archaeological evidence. There's a lot here that I could geek out on, but we're not. I'm going to give you three, and these all are really recent. In fact, this first one I, I came out just last month in January. They just announced this last month. So, uh, in uh, 1868, a stone with carvings was discovered. Now, in the process, in 1869, this, this stone was destroyed. It was broken. But before they did that, before it was destroyed, they, they did a, a paper mache uh, copy of it. And so they've been able to translate these carvings on this stone. And it talks about King Mesha of Moab going to war in Israel. And that corresponds with what we read about in 2 Kings chapter 3. 
And on this carving, it mentions the Israelite God, the house of David, and the altar of David. So here we have archaeological evidence for not only something that happened within the Bible, but also of David, of his kingdom, of his sons, of his house ruling Israel. And so this was, uh, so this next one was, uh, was listed among the major archaeological finds of, two, of 2022. So in, in 2007, a monument was dug up in, uh, in Jerusalem uh, with the inscription, with an inscription on it. Now, one of the reasons that this was uh, significant is that it was common for Israel's neighbors to have these monuments erected that, uh, that detailed significant events in their history. There's been none of those types of things ever found in Israel until this, this, this monument. And so this monument had an, an inscription on it. And part of the text says, Hezekiah made pools in Jerusalem. Hezekiah made pools in Jerusalem, which echoes 2 Kings 20.20, which says the rest of the events of Hezekiah's reign, along with all his might and how he made the pool and the tunnel that brought water into the city are written in the historical record of Judah's king. So here you have this monument recognizing, remembering the fact that Hezekiah, during his reign, he made it possible for Jerusalem to have water by building these pools and, and tunneling water into the city. Now, this next one is probably the most significant find discovery in a long time. So in Joshua chapter 8, we read about Joshua building an altar at Mount Ebal. And there, directed by God, Joshua offers blessings and curses. And he offers these curses to anyone who falls away from God and worships the idols, the, the gods of the land that they are. So 40 years ago, they excavated a site on Mount Ebal. And during their going through their shifting process, a tiny little tablet was missed. And they recently rediscovered this tablet. And it's a lead tablet. And when they opened it up, it had an, an inscription written on it. But it could never have be, been read read before. Now with CAT scan technology, they were able to read it. And this is what this, this tablet said. Cursed, 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 cursed by the God of Yahweh, you will be cursed. And it goes on from there. But here's what's significant about this. Not only does it line up with what we read about in Joshua chapter 8, but this is, it dates between 1200 and 1400 BC. So this is the, by far, hundreds of years, the earliest, by hundreds of years, this is the earliest example of Hebrew that we have. So people were saying, hey, the, the Pentateuch, you know, the Torah, not, Moses couldn't have written it because Hebrew wasn't even invented yet. Now we have proof that during that time, 
They were, people were already writing in Hebrew. Not only that, given the sentence structure of this, this is, this is far more advanced than what they would have thought the ancient Hebrews could have written. So it gives light not only to this story, to this account in, Je- in Joshua 8, but it also shows us, it, it starts to, 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 to show us that, hey, the exodus could have happened at, at a much earlier time. Yeah, it was possible for Moses to write the Torah. It gives confidence to all these things that we believed or what tradition had passed down about these events. So what we see is that archaeology over and over and over again, because there's hundreds of these, prove the events or or support the events that are recorded in the Bible. The third line of evidence that we'll talk about is the cohesion, is cohesion evidence. So remember when we went through the story, the big idea that I had for that sermon series as we looked at the story was this. And I stole this from the Bible Project. If you follow the Bible Project, you know this is their tagline. The Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. The Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. And so when we look at the Bible, which spans hundreds of years, It's amazing that there is this one unified story about how God relates to people, to his creation, and the love that he has for them. Right? Starting with Genesis 3.15, where God says there's going to come a snake crusher who's going to be wounded in the process of crushing the snake to to Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abraham, like, hey, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and you bless your descendants, and they're going to bless all the, the nations of the world. We see this cohesive story that is put together, that spans centuries. Not only that, but we see this, this remarkable consistency in morality that goes from the Old Testament the New Testament. A morality that is founded on love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Jesus says this is, the, these are the, this is the most important commandment. People in Jesus' day were already looking at that as the most important part of the law. To love God, to love people. We also see, spanning through the Bible, this this, uh, concern that God has for all the nations of the world, not just the Jews, but for all nations. So you have Rahab, who's rescued from from Jericho. Jericho. You have Ruth, who becomes part of the lineage of of David and, and of Jesus. You have God sending Jonah to the city of Nineveh. Like there's a concern that God has for all the nations of the world. So there's this cohesiveness about the Bible that support that it's supported internally 
from the start to the end. And this cohesion would have been impossible given the amount of time it took to to construct the Bible, to write the Bible, if God wasn't directing men and women and the writing and and the preservation of his word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, says this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. One of the purposes of the Bible is to teach us the truth to reveal to us not only the truth about the world that we live in, the truth about God, but also the truth about who we are. But the only way that we're going to be able to hear that truth is if we trust, if if we believe that the Bible is reliable, that the Bible can be trusted. So when we trust the Bible, it is able to reveal to us truth about God, the world, and ourselves that we need to know. This is God's book given to us so we can know him, we can know how he wants his people to live. So here's the big idea this morning. We can trust the Bible to give us the truth we need to know to live as God's people. We can trust the Bible to give us the truth we need to live as God's people. We can trust it. There's no reason to doubt it. This is what was originally written. This is what God wants us to know, and we can accept it as that. There's no reason to, to, question, to question the reliability of Scripture. Now, here's the challenge. I'm challenging you to take the next 10 days to study Philippians with me. Well, we're... We've been studying Philippians the last few weeks on, on Sunday morning in Sunday school class with the, with, uh, with that, with the adults. And so, but, but I'm asking you to come along. Let's study the Bible. If we really believe that, that the Bible is trustworthy, that it is God's word to us, then let's study it. Let's study it. So the way that we're going to do this is that, you know, I've developed this, this little Bible study method. It's, it's, it's the way I, I prepare my sermons. When I come to a text, this is what I do. So I've been doing this with, with the lessons for, for Philippians. I summarize the text. I find the main truth to what I think, you know, to that passage or what I think the main truth is. I make some observations, usually four to six observations that kind of stick out to me about that, that text. And, and then I write a prayer, a prayer to help me apply that text, asking God to help me apply that text to my life. And so what we're, what we're going to do uh, is, is uh, start with uh, tomorrow, of Philippians 1, 1 through 6, read through that, follow this stop method, and summarize it, find the truth, make some observations about it, pray about it. And, uh, and I'm going to post mine on my blog. 
paulsponderings.com, and so you can kind of see how I'm processing, how I'm studying it, but, but let's do this together. Let's get into God's Word, and let's study it. Let's pray about it. Let's understand it, because we're going to trust that it is what God wants us to know. It's what God wants us to know. The Bible is a remarkable book. It is unique among other ancient books in a way, in the way it's been preserved. We can be confident that this is the book that God wants us to have. We don't have to worry about the questions that we may have. God's not afraid of them. There are good answers to the questions that we have. And I am confident that as we seek these answers, God is going to use the whole process to strengthen our faith and make us into the people that he created us to be. Keep on asking those questions and keep on looking to God.